Okay, I'd like to uh, dedicate this shir to the memory of Dr. Azrael Goldstein, whose levaya I just returned from. It was a special kind of Jew, a doctor who never allowed himself to stop learning Torah. I had a special connection to Dr. Goldstein. His, uh, his three daughters were students of mine, and I was a student of his. He prepared me for my bar mitzvah and taught me how to learn. And uh, my father, Zechrona Lebrocha, who was a Balkari, but realized that he could never formally be my teacher. It would be like too difficult for everybody. So he was very happy to, fa- to find Dr. Goldstein, who was not then Dr. Goldstein, but he was on his way, soon to be Dr. Goldstein. Very happy to find him. He's very happy that uh, he was the one who taught me how to lane. My father always said, my father used to say that, you know, if everything else doesn't work out, you could be a shamus in a shul, which to him seemed to be the end of the road. And he said it's like good, you know, it's good to have those skills. So I ended up with those skills. And then I was a shamus in a yeshiva for many years. So, what we would like to do tonight is try to get some insight into the mitzvah of Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim. There's an obligation that we all have, men and women, to tell the story, to tell some story or other on the night of Pesach. Now, we don't concern ourselves particularly with this obligation because it's all in the Haggadah. You take a Haggadah off the shelf, you know, you could take a pamphlet, you could take a little book, you could take a colored book, you could take a picture book. It's all the same Haggadah. And we know that if we read the Haggadah, and in this case there's no difference, of course, as you know, between men and women, the mitzvah applies equally to both, which means that everybody has to read the Haggadah. I mean, that's the, the way we do the mitzvah. You read the Haggadah. And even if you, like, enjoy the singing parts more, it doesn't matter. You still have to read the other parts as well. And if I told you that uh, you could actually fulfill the mitzvah of Sipu Yitziat Mitzrayim without singing Dayenu, you might not believe me. But that, in fact, is the case. And the other parts, the more boring parts, that's where you really have to make an effort. So what is the Sipur? What is the story that we have to tell? Now the text that I'm going to look at primarily is this text that you have in front of you, which is the Rambam, the seventh parak of Hilchot Chametz Umatzah, where the Rambam basically summarizes the mitzvah of Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim and how to do it. That's what the seventh parak is about. It's about our Seder and our fulfillment of the mitzvah of Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim. The eighth parak and last parak of Hilchot Chameitz Umatzah is the Rambam's rendition of how it was in the time of the Beit HaMikdash when they brought, they actually brought, the Jews brought the Korban Pesach, special sacrifice that's related to Pesach. But the seventh parak is the parak about how we do it, how we accomplish this mitzvah of Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim. So, we could look at the Haggadah, we could look at the Ramah. 
the Rambam is a little bit more efficient, so I chose to look tonight at the Rambam. We have to remember also that the Haggadah is an ancient Jewish text. By ancient, I mean it already appears fairly fully formed in the Mishnah. In the Mishnah, the Mishnah, I mean, Rabbi Yudha Nasi, 250 CE, maybe a little bit later. <coughs> but you have, in the Mishnah, you have elements of the Haggadah. So it means that in the time of the Mishnah, people had a Seder, and they all read or said the same things to a large extent. They may have said other things as well. But the basic outline is in the Mishnah. And therefore, it's really, uh, perhaps, you know, one of the oldest Jewish texts that we have. I mean, there are other texts in the Gemara, but the Gemara is largely written later than the Mishnah. Right? But, okay. I just thought, you know, it would be important to know that. The Rambam says this. Mitzvata Seishel Torah. See, Halacha Aleph. Mitzvah say shel Torah. When the Rambam says there's a mitzvah say, he means that there's a pasuk in the Torah which stands behind this mitzvah. Because for the Rambam, a mitzvah is one of the 613 mitzvot. And the 613 mitzvot are all in the Torah. And not only are they in the Torah, but you could point at them. And therefore, we expect the Rambam to tell us what the Pasuk is. That's how the Rambam works. And he's going to tell us. But before he tells us, he says that the Mitzvah of Seishol Torah is Saper, Benisim V'Niflaot Shenasu L'Avotainu V'Bitzrayim. I always found this remarkable. Not always. When I used to learn, before Pesach, we used to learn Hilchot Chabetz Matzah, the Rambam, now we all know, or we all remember, that the Rambam did not have such a high opinion of miracles. And he said that faith, faith in God, what we call emunah, is not something that's conditional upon miracles or magical things that happen in the air. Quite the contrary. For the Rambam, miracles didn't prove much. You remember when Moshe Rabbeinu came to Paro, and he said, uh, I'm going to do a few miracles, Paro. And Paro said, okay, let's see what you can do. He says, look, I have this staff, I'm going to throw it down and become a snake. That's pretty good. I mean, a staff into a snake? Who could do that? So Paro said, well, let me check it out. He bring in, bring in his uh, magicians. He says, oh, what about you guys? Could you do this? So he said, sure. We have staffs. <laughs> they all became snakes. So what do you learn from that? And from that point on, you have to understand that Moshe Rabbeinu was never able to convince Paro of anything. Didn't matter what the miracle was. Because Paro was always able to make this logical assessment. Pyro was always able to say, look, if my magicians can do it, so no big deal. And if they can't do it, there may be magicians someplace else who could do it. In other words, for, for Pyro, all of the makot in Mitzrayim, the nisim and the niflaot of Mitzrayim became meaningless. Didn't matter to him. Dam. Tzvadeya, Kilim, Arov, didn't matter. What mattered to Paro? If he was in pain. So he went to Moshe Rabbeinu and he said, Listen, I'm in pain, stop the bow, do whatever you want. Right? Which is what people do when they're in pain. Whatever you say. But he didn't believe that the miracles granted Moshe Rabbeinu superiority. No. People, special people, do miracles. And so if his magicians couldn't do miracles, it could be some other magician someplace else, wherever Moshe Rabbeinu came from, that they could do the, the, these miracles. 
That's what, that's what Paro said. That's why the miracles, if you read the story, I mean, it had really no effect on, my, on my Paro at all. After the Makat Bechorot, the last of the miracles, which sounds to us like the, like the most terrible thing you could imagine, that all the four firstborn children of all the households in Egypt died. Can you imagine that? Didn't matter. Here's Paro chasing after Bnei Yisrael, chasing them to Yamsuf. So miracle, this is all what I'm telling you is what the Rambam says. The Rambam himself said that. Because miracles don't prove a thing. There's nothing that you get from miracles. I mean, I know it sounds a little uh, different than we are taught to think. Like, you know, people walk around and say, oh, it's a miracle. I turn on the light switch. Oh, it's a miracle. Everything's a miracle. The Rambam said, he didn't say it's not a miracle. He said it's of no significance. Because what is it you're saying? You mean God can make a lot of frogs? I mean, Mr. God can make a lot of frogs. And God can make uh, fire and water go together. Okay. I mean, does it make, make me understand more about God or less about God? Of course, God can do anything. God created the world. He can do anything. The point, however, is that Paro is not convinced. And yet, the Rambam formulates the mitzvah of the night of Pesach as mitzvah tasseichel Torah, v'saper b'nissimu l'flaot shenasul avotenu b'mitzrayim b'lel chamishasar b'nissam. That's the mitzvah. And so the first thing we have to understand is, if the nisim and if laot are essentially irrelevant to my faith in God, and words, if you have faith in God, so you know that God can do anything. And if you don't have faith in God, then the miracle doesn't really prove anything. So why is it that we're, according to the Rambam, intent on telling about the miracles. Tell you the miracles that happened in, um, in Mitzrayim. Now, of course, the pasuk that goes to that, with that, with that mitzvah, is in the third line of the first paragraph. And the mitzvah is, V'gadata lebincha fayomahu lemo. V'gadata lebincha. That's what the Rambam says. You have to tell it over. But it doesn't say we got it like, like mixed metaphors. I, I'm getting mixed up. I'm supposed to tell about the Rambam says. But but what am I pointing at? Matzah and Maror. Now Matzah is the opposite of a miracle. When B'nai Israel left Mitzrayim, God didn't say to them, listen, as you leave, everybody take a loaf of wrapped angel bread. Like right there, it'll be right there. Just take a loaf. That's not what God said. God said, no miracles for you guys. You guys have to, like, you're going to just make whatever you can make. And you'll eat it on the way. What, what are you going to make? Wasa bread. Can you imagine that? <laughs> you don't know what that is. It's delicious. But you can make something that, you can make something you don't want. Right? What do you want? You want a piece of bread. What are you going to get? You get a matzah. I mean, is there a British like, after ten plagues? You couldn't, like, produce a little bread? As we're on our way out of the shrine? So that this is Bavur Zeh. Matzo Moro. The Rambam doesn't say Pesach. They said Kashas. I'm not very interested in that right now. I mean, like, we, we get to the fine details. But that's what the Rambam says. On the one hand, you have to say, you tell the story of the miracles. On the other hand, the Pasuk that tells me that I have to talk to my children on Pesach is, we got it to live in Cha. Bavur Zeh. Okay, something I can point at. What am I pointing at? Matzah and Maror. Okay, Maror. Let's forget about Maror. But even Matzah. What, where's the miracle? Where's the miracle? Matzah is the anti-miracle. 
It's the anti-miracle. After God killed the firstborn, God produced darkness for three days, etc., 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 going backwards. God couldn't produce bread for B'nai Yisrael. They had to do it b'chipazon. They had to run quickly and get these, this, this kind of stuff that we eat every year for a week exclusively, which has different effects on different people, but mostly bad effects. You know, matzah, it's like it deludes you because you're a little hungry. When you start eating matzah, you think that it's good. But three days later, you find out uh, it's not as good as you thought it was. I mean, if you pay hundreds of shkalim for that piece of matzah, it's still not going to work in your intestines. Nothing you can do about it. So you have this problem. They have this problem. Nisim and niflaot, matzah. Nisim and niflaot, matzah. Right? If you look at Halacha Bet, the Rabbim says, expanding on this idea, Mitzvah lo odiya lebanim, v'afilu lo sha'alu, sh'nehemah v'igadat alevincha. So the Rabbim here includes a feature of the Haggadah that we all know. That Vigadata Lebincha is a response. It's not just take the initiative and talk to your children, but it's a response. The best way to do it is for the children to ask. <clears throat> the children are supposed to ask what's going on, what's happening, right? And the questions that the children ask are encapsulated in what we call Manishtana. <coughs> not Manishtana gets a bad deal. Right? You know about Manishtana? <coughs> and mostly, if you go to the Seder table, the trick is, how can we get the youngest child to say Manishtana like a little doll, like a little wind-up doll? You know, they don't know exactly what they're saying, but they say it. They say it, and we say, yippee. We said it, but the halacha is that you're selling Manishtana short because because if a person is very smart a great Talmud Chacham and is alone for the Seder he has to say Manishtana in fact every one of us has to say Manishtana and we cannot live, leave it to the Jewish prodigy of the year to say no, 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 I mean, it's very nice he could say it or she could say it I mean, they practiced, they learned about it they could say it, but I also have to say it I, I'm not his saying it or her saying it is not good enough for me I have to say Manishtana now listen to Manishtana there are four questions three of them are not so relevant to our discussion but the first one is a powerhouse. Manishtana halayla hazeh, we call halaylot. I don't know if I'm doing such a good job singing it. Shebechol halaylot, anu ochlim, chameitz umatzah. Halayla hazeh, parentheses, Allah got us the parentheses, kulo, close parentheses, matzah. What exactly is the question? What would you say? The question is, so there's a shortcut, shortcut to the question, is this. Every other night, we have free will. You want to eat matzah? Eat matzah. You want to eat chametz? You eat chametz. Pesach, your free will is taken away. You can only eat matzah. Kulo matzah means... You have to exorcise the chametz. Not only can't you eat chametz, you can't have it, you can't look at it, you can't smell it, they can't be with you. Right? Even if it means that you have to clean your house for three weeks, you're going to get that chametz out of there. But what is that all about? Isn't it true that B'nai Yisrael ate matzah because that's what they had to eat? But they weren't doing an act of denial against chametz. And what, pray, could an act of denial of chametz have to do with the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim? 
But when do we when do we respond to that question? When is there a response to the question? Where's the response to the question of how come no chametz? When on that night of Pesach does anybody refer to that question? So what we're doing is piling up questions. I just want to pile up a few more before I start trying to answer the questions. If you look at Halacha Dalit. Halacha Dalit is a quote from the Mishnah. These words tell me how the answer to the question has to be formulated. What's the question? The question about Chameitz Matzah. What's the mitzvah? L'saper nisim and niflaot. What's the answer? The Mishnah says, Matchil bignut u'misayim b'shvach. You start off saying something less than uh, appreciative of Am Yisrael and misayim b'shvach, but you end up saying nice things. Actually, the Mishnah, the Mishnah and the Gemara and the Haggadah teach us that there are three stories that we tell on the night of Pesach. Three. The first story, the Rambam says, uh, the Rambam says, uh, okay, the Rambam has a different order than we have in our Haggadot. The Rambam says, Ketzat, Matchil misapeshe b'tchila yu avoteinu b'mei terech milafanav kofrim v'to'in in our Haggadot, that's the second story. The second story is Mitchila of Day Hayu You remember that? Believe me, it was there last year, and it's still there. But it's a it's a mystery. Mitchila of day avos. I mean, that's really. What is he talking about? What is the Haggadah talking about? What is the Mishnah talking about? What do you mean? Who was an Oved Avodazara? Terach. He was an Oved Avodazara. Abraham. He was the, the enlightened one. He's the one who saw something no one else saw at his time, in the time that he lived. How can you say Mitchila of day Avodazara? You Oved. How can you say anything like that? And who are they? They're the, 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 the uh, quotes of Pesach from Yeshua. Terach Avi Abraham. Terach Avi Abraham. It's as though we're saying that, that Am Yisrael had a genetic flaw. We were the children of Terach. And even though we don't like to mention it, well, you don't usually like to mention those relatives that you don't like to mention. So as far as we're concerned, we're the children of Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Who are they? The children of nobody. They're children of nobody. The, the Maharal tries to prove that as well, that somehow Abraham was sui generis. He was like, like he, he was not from anybody. He was so unique that you couldn't really attribute any of his characteristics to his biological father. That's what the Maharal says. But you could see from the morale that it's an issue. It's like a little annoying to think that Avinu's father was a outstanding, not a regular, but an outstanding idolater. He sold the stuff on the street, right? He was, they say he was a pusher. He wasn't just a secret user. And he, Avinu, I mean... You know, he had to decide, as the Chumash says, whether he had to give kavod to his father or not. You know, like a, so that's one story. The second story the Rambam mentions is, you see paragraph Dalid, the third line, the fourth word, the third word. Remember that? Avadim hayinu that's the matchil bignut. We start off by saying something unsavory. What's unsavory about avadim ayinu? We didn't do it. They did it to us. It was paro. It was the Egyptians. And, and so we have two stories. 
which you can sing or not sing as you wish. And the second story is, second story. And then there's a third story. There's a third story. And the third story is, you see the same halacha in the Rambam. The word Yidrosh means the drasha that's in the Midrash. The Midrash explains the Pasuk word for word. What's Arami Oved Avi? Arami is Lavan and Avi is Yaakov. So we have three stories. Each of these stories started a different place in Jewish history. You say, we want to talk about Nisim and Niflaot. We want to talk about the miracles of Mitzrayim. Well, I have to start someplace. I have to start someplace. I have to, where did it begin? I mean, like, that's a reasonable thing to look into. Where does the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim start? I mean, I know what I'm supposed to get to. I'm supposed to get to the miracles, but it doesn't seem to me that I can just sit there and say, Dabs right there, came in and go home. I've got to tell a story. I've got to tell a story that's in the Torah somehow. A true story, an authentic story. Well, where do I start the story from? Zudo Chachamim thought about it. And they had three different positions. Three different positions. The first, in our Haggadah, that the story starts with the enslavement of Bnei Yisrael. The second story, we come from idolatrous stock. And the third start to the story is the confrontation with Yaakov and Lava, where Yaakov could not get out of the clutches of Lava. He could not assert his independence, religiously, morally, spiritually, until HaKadosh Baruch Hu appeared to him and showed him the way out of his dilemma. So there are three starts. Three starts, and it would be reasonable for us to say, there was a, we could, it could have been, it might have been, that the Chachamim would have decided that the Haggadah would, would contain one of these starts. In fact, the Gemara says that Matchil Begnug Masai Meshach is Machloket Rabin Shmuel. Whether you say Avodim Hayinu or you say Mitchila Ovde Avodazor. Machloket Rabin Shmuel. But in this case, the Machloket is not resolved. And our Haggadah includes all the positions. All three positions. And since it includes all three positions, that's what we have to understand. Why do we need all three positions? Why do all three positions? Why are all three positions important? There's one more thing I would like to uh, say about this halacha. The Rambam says at the end of halacha Dalit, the last words, "Kolamosifu ma'arich bedrash parsha zo hareze mishubach." And here the Rambam says, I mean, call Amosifu Marich Bemedrash says, he's talking about Arami Ovedavi. Whoever can give it further explanation and understanding, Areza Mishubach. And if you look back at Halacha Aleph, the Rambam says, the last, next to the last line, the seventh word, Afilu. You see that word, Afilu? The end of Aleph, two lines from the bottom of, of the end of the paragraph, the seventh word. Afilu, chachamim gedolim chayavim l'saper b'yitziat Mitzrayim. Right, even great Talmidei chachamim, who know the story. I mean, they remember it from last year. I mean, for them it's like saying Tillin. I mean, they know, they know what's going on. So, what about them, the Rambam says. This is also in the Mishnah, everything's in the Mishnah. Even great Talmidei Chachamim who know whatever there is to know they are Chayavim L'Saper and not only that V'chol HaMarich B'Dvarim Shere'u V'Shahayum HaRezer Mishubach Kol HaMarich Now what does that mean? 
Kol HaMa'arich. How can you be Ma'arich? The story is the story. I mean, it starts from A, or it starts from B, or it starts from C, but after that, it's the story. What are you going to Ma'arich? So that the Rambam wants us to know very carefully and precisely that even though the children have a role, and even though I have a concern for the children, just as I have the concern for the children in teaching Torah every day of the year, and my obligation as a parent is to teach the children Torah. The way that I tell the story is by teaching the children Torah. But of course, just as teaching children Torah is not the only source of my obligation. If somebody thankfully has children who have grown and they're all on their own and great scholars and, and, and righteous people, doesn't mean that the parents have to stop learning Torah. Certainly not. The same thing is true about the Sifur Yitziat Mitzrayim. Even though there's an obligation for the parents to teach their children, there's at the same time an obligation that the parents have to tell themselves the story on whatever level they happen to be, whatever kind of scholarship they have managed to achieve. It's not a children's evening. It's not. It's not junior congregation. It's not. It's Talmud Torah. That's what the Ramam says. The content is not arbitrary. Like I can't go on the night of Pesach and instead of reading the Haggadah, learn Baba Kama, Daf such and such with my children. I can't do that. I can do it. But that's not the mitzvah of Sipu Yitziat Mitzrayim. But Chas Shalom, don't think that the mitzvah is defined by the level of the children. The level of the children creates a demand on me. I have to be able to accommodate their needs. But I also have to do the mitzvah. And doing the mitzvah, according to the Rambam, kol ha-ma'arich bidvarim shiru v'shayu mishubach. That's what the that's what the Rambam says. Now, if you look at halacha hey, and I think uh, this may be the last halacha that we'll actually look at. Whoever doesn't say the following three things on the night of Pesach did not fulfill his obligation. Very well. What are they? Pesach, Matzah, Umara. So it could be that the Rambam, the Rambam says, look, besides talking about miracles, that's what Rabbi Gamliel says, about Pesach, about Matzah, about Maror. Because these are parts of the day. These are the things that were determined to be of great significance in terms of telling the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. So besides the Nisim and the Flaot, we have to talk about Pesach, Matzah, and Maror. One more halacha. <coughs> halacha Vav. This is the halacha that we all know. A person has to see himself as though he has just left Shiabud, the slavery in Mitzrayim. You have to. I mean, so how do you do that? You imagine, I always you know, wondered, like you see, it's good to be older. You can think about what you thought when you were younger. Which is not always so good, but... Uh, so here we are. Yeah, you know, like, you know, like your wife is a balabusta, you know, like... So, you know, like the table, it really looks classy, doesn't it? It's 
got those nice glasses. You like go ping on the glass, and it goes. You can hear a musical note, and you got that nice china. I mean, when I was younger, no one would agree to use paper plates. Today, I think uh, the women are a little more liberal. They've become liberated. So they sometimes use paper plates. I mean, but it looks good, right? The table, a Pesach, looks good. You got the matzah, you got the moro, and you got the stator plate, which today you can buy in 50 different varieties. Square ones and round ones and, you know, uh, ladders, like ladders, say, everybody put it in the matzah here, you put it in this here. It's like really, uh, it's, the whole thing is unbelievable. And you go and you sit down and you're sitting down in a big chair and you have a pillow and you lean and you say, ah. And then the rabbi says, I would like everybody to feel as though they were about to leave Mitzrayim right now. <laughs> For this trick, you need a hallucinatory drug. I mean, how can everybody convince themselves sitting in all this grandeur? And rich, I mean, rich, and everybody's rich. Everybody's richer than they were, their parents were. I mean, not everybody. But most people. I mean, these tables are really nice. I mean, it looks good. Come home from shul, and everybody's so well dressed. Got to do suit, got to do shirt, whatever it is you you think you have to get to be new on Pesach. Like you want to be new, you don't want to be. Well, you didn't just come for Sipur Yitzhak Mitzrayim. You came to be new, a new edition, like you're a new edition of yourself. What's the Rebbe talking about? How could he, I mean, how could you do that? What are you supposed to do? The Jews ran out of a tribe, but they didn't have anything. So what you do is take away the chairs and sit on the floor. You know, the Yemenites, the Yemenites say that they actually do this. They take little bags and they walk around the table and they say, we just left Mitzrayim. I mean, I guess the Yemenites have a lot of good imagination. Because after that, they sit down and eat the brisket of beef, you know, and they, and they say, oh, it's not exactly like Mitzrayim. Well, I'm going to give it up. Say it's the Rambam. The Rambam puts it down there. The Rambam doesn't tell us how we're supposed to accomplish this feat. So I, 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 I have a lot of, I asked a lot of questions, right? And I would like to try to answer all of them with one uh, with one idea I'd like to answer one of the, all of them with one idea and the story is how do you know what a story is I mean what's a story you know they put out this cartoon about, what's it called, about Yitzhak Mitzrayim, Spielberg, or one of those guys. And that's all. I'm not as up on things as I should be. Who made that cartoon? Uh, what's it? Prince of Egypt, good. But who made it? Uh, okay. So they made it, so, so, it was, you could take a story, and you could take a, and you could make it into a movie. Okay, it's a cartoon, but it's a movie, right? It's just that even I can see a cartoon. When you make a movie out of a story, you've got to fill in a lot of blanks. Like the story is not always so exciting. Like Moshe Rabbeinu came to Paro, and he said, let him go. And Paro said, no. And then there was a plague. And Paro said, please stop. I let him go. And then Moshe Rabbeinu said, okay. And then Paro said, I changed my mind. And then Moshe Rabbeinu went and he made another play. Right? You can't make a movie out of that. I mean, that's... There's no story there. Right? There's no romance. There's no love. There's no excitement. So a movie... A movie is a new story. It has to be. 
But we don't have an obligation to tell a new story. We have an obligation to tell the story. The story of Nisim and Niflaot. And you know, we have already mentioned that this story has to be told in the manner of Talmud Torah. In the manner of Talmud Torah. <coughs> and you know that there is a famous essay that Rabbi Salavetrik wrote called Ish HaHalacha. Not the lonely man of Halacha, but the man of Halacha. And that essay is translated to English, a very good translation by Larry Kaplan. But I read it originally before the translation was written, because I've been around for a long time. And in that essay, the Rav tries to make a point. He tries to make a point. When I say he tries to make a point, I mean he, he probably understood very well what he was saying. But it's not so easy for us to understand what he was saying. And in making that point, he quotes a famous passage from the Tanya. You know, the Tanya was the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, lived in the middle of the 18th century, and was a, a great genius, and was well-versed in, uh, in Halakha, in Kabbalah, in Agadah, you know, all these areas were under his control. I mean, he knew everything. And the Rav, as you know, and the story is, when he was a child, he had a tutor. Uh, that's how they used to do it in those days. He had an exceptional child, and the Rav was exceptional, so he was tutored. And his tutor was a Lubavitcher Chassid. And this Chassid would teach the Rav uh, as a child, he would teach him Gemara, or whatever you're supposed to teach. But he would always end up by teaching a little Tanya. And this was so well embedded in the Rav's mind that years later, he could quote the Tanya Baalpeh. You know, portions of the Tanya. The Tanya was a book written by the Lubavitcher Rebbe about, let's say, what is a man? What is our obligation? What are we to do? Right? What are, what are all these things? At the time that I read this, the first time I read this in YU, YU was a very Litvish kind of place. Which means that no one ever mentioned the word chassid that I can remember. No one ever mentioned Labavitch or Chabad. No one mentioned it. And the Rav certainly did not mention it to us. So when I read this the first time in Isha I'm fairly certain that I didn't know exactly what the Tanya was or what it was that he was quoting. But years later I found out, I was astounded to find out that the Rav knew this book as well as other people know Taylor. And so in this book, the Rav is making an argument. The Rav is making an argument. He wants to say that, that halakha, that the study of halakha creates the world that you live in. Uh, let me say it this way. Matz is mutar on Pesach, and chametz is asur on Pesach. Okay? But when I study it, and I find out more carefully what the definition of matzah is, and then what the definition of chametz is, so that reformulates the world that I live in. The things that I'm allowed to have in my possession, the things I'm not allowed to have in my possession. My possession. So that the study of halakha determines the world that I live in. That what it is that is important to me, what it is that I can avoid or ignore. And every person, every person lives in such a world, a world that has boundaries and limits. And the halakha, according to Rabbi Soloveitchik, presents me with limits. And the only people who know these limits are the people who know the halakha very well. And therefore, if it, we could say that there's someone who is the best, who knows the most, who is the, the to him it's the clearest, his, his understanding of halakha is clearest, that he would live 
in the clearest world, in the most, in the simplest and straight, most straightforward God-given world. It's like, it's like um, geometry. When you study geometry, you learn things about the world that you live in. You might never have thought about it. You might never have thought about the legs of a triangle. You might never have thought of Pythagoras. But suddenly you see that it's in the world. It's in that world in which we live. There are rules. I never thought of these rules that relate straight lines and curved lines and, and, and one kind of shape and another kind of shape without getting into it. We all understand. We understand that this is a blind, a, a mind-blowing experience. That imagine to say, you say a line has an infinite number of points. You know, once you say that, if you think about it, I mean, you could say it and not think about it, if you say it and you think about it, the world you live in is different. Everybody, as you look, there's a line. There's a line. You say, look at that. That piece of wood. There's an infinite number of points. That's remarkable. Now, maybe you don't think about it so much, but you could. And, and the person who thinks about it lives in a special world. And why is this important to us? And so the Balatanya, in the first part, the fifth chapter, says as follows. I'm going to try to translate it to you, for you. I don't, um, I don't have the English with me. Well, I don't have it at all, embarrassingly. <clears throat> when a person understands halacha, when he understands what the Mishnah is telling us, for example, Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim. When you understand, like you say, we're standing, we're saying, what does the Torah want of us? How come the Mishnah says there are three stories? How come the, the other Mishnah says, even Talmidei Chachamim should talk about it? What is exactly this mitzvah? What is it that the Torah wants of us? So the Rambam says, you have to understand that this halacha is the wisdom and the will of HaKadosh Baruch And it occurred in heaven somehow that if Ruvain comes to court and says this, and Shimon comes to court and says the other thing. He says, even if this case never comes, never comes to a real court. He says, Ruvain comes and he says, oh, he, he owes me money. And Shimon comes and says, no, I paid him already. And we discuss this case. Now, Ruvain never comes to court and Shimon never comes to court. It doesn't matter, the Balatanya says. He says, because Mikomako, nevertheless, since this case somehow reflects divine wisdom, that if so-and-so says this and the other one says that, the psak, the determination will be X. <clears throat> so when you understand that, you're really understanding God's mind. Right? So that the Torah, according to the Balatanya, quoted by Rabbi Salabachi, because I guess it means the Rabbi Salabachi agreed or thought that it was worth quoting at least, that the study of halacha is not the study, is not the study of what do I do and what do I avoid doing. That's not the study of halacha. Because everybody's ever learned any yeshiva, whoever has ever learned Talmud knows that there are many cases in the Talmud that are purely speculative. They're never going to happen. But it doesn't matter. Because according to the Balatanya, the Talmud is not only interested in the halacha, what do I do? But the Talmud is interested in what is it about? Why is it that God wanted us to know this? And the why is it that God wanted us to know this 
is the essential component of the mitzvah of Talmud Torah. And so the essential obligation on the night of Pesach is not telling the story, which is easy enough if you just read parts of the Chumash, but the essential nature of telling the story has to do with understanding why God wants us to tell the story. Why would God want us to tell about the Nisim and Niflaot? And why does God want us to ponder this, even if we are very great scholars and have learned a lot of Torah? So having said that, I want to leave you with an answer. I don't want to just belabor the question. I want to give you an answer. And the answer, of course, is found in the piyut that we say on the night of the Seder, which has the refrain, Dayenu. Dayenu, you remember in the, in the Haggadah, is found after Arami Ovedavi, which leads us into the Aseret Hamakot, Dam Vaeshvitimrot Ashan, followed by Dam Tzradeh Kinim, everybody wakes up, because you have to put your, either your first finger in the wine or your pinky in the wine. This is a dispute amongst the various relatives of mine. Right? I try to ignore this question. But this is a question. Uh, what do you do with the drop of wine after you got on your finger? Where do you throw it? So yes, some people say you have to have a separate plate. And some people say you could just use the plate that's under the wine cup. Okay, we can't do it. But after that, after the Damsvader, Kinev, we mentioned the Makot, we sing together Dayenu. In fact, for most people, Dayenu is the high point of the Seder. Because it's the time to wake up. Because we're about, we're about to eat. Right? And waking up before you eat, it sounds like a reasonable thing to do. Waking up before you uh, tell the story, well, that's not so reasonable. But eating when you're asleep, that doesn't seem to be such a big deal. So let's look at a, at a passage in Dayenu. Where's Dayenu? Ilu kervanu lifnei har sinai v'lo natan lanu Why did you try that? Go find some yeshiva guy or some girl in a seminary and say, ah, we didn't need the Torah. We are just enough to be at Har Sinai. It was a good trip. Took us a few days. It was a pleasure. That's it. What do we need the Torah for? You think we could get away with that? Listen. Ilu kervanu v'nei Har Sinai v'lo natan lanu et Torah. Ilu natan lanu et Torah v'lo chmisanu l'Eretz Yisrael. Well, that's a good one. What will we do with the Torah if we didn't go to Eretz Yisrael? There'll be no Trumot, and no Masrot, and no Beit HaMikdash, no Matanot, no Kohanim, nothing. I, I mean, who wrote this? How about this one? Ilu ichmisano l'Eretz Yisrael lo banalano et Beit HaBechira. How's that? Fine. So there wouldn't be a Beit HaMikdash. So what is this? What does it get to do with, uh, with what's going on? Because what are you telling the story about Nisim and the Flaot? The Nisim and the Flaot, Nisim the tribe is only in order to receive the Torah and then to go to Eretz Yisrael? How could anybody in the midst of all this say? Okay. So we didn't get the Torah. Okay, so we didn't build the Beit HaMikdash. Well, where could, where could that come from? Where could that come from? Now you know that before this song called Ayenu, there is the interesting argument amongst the uh, amongst the Tanaim, Rabbi Yossi Aglili, Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Yossi Aglili said there were ten makot in the tribe. Okay, you could ask any kid in the cheder. I mean, he would tell you ten makot in the tribe. I mean, he learned that he learned the chumash. You think it's so easy? Rabbi Eliezer says, 
Well, there were 40 Makot in Mitzrayim. You say, he's got to be kidding, right? Here we have an obligation to tell the, about these Simon flow. There comes Rabbi Lozzi, he said there are 40. But that's not it. Rabbi Akiva says that there were 50. And this is the part of the Haggadah where everybody's still asleep. Even though I've only drunk one cup of wine. One cup of wine you should be able to handle. So, Rabbi Yossi said there were 10 makot. Rabbi Liza said there were 40 makot. Rabbi Akiva said there were 50 makot. What do you mean makot? Where do you get 40 from? Where do you get 50 from? So they said that about Russia, but the terrorists said that there were 10. So I told you. The word Sipur for us doesn't mean the movie. It's not that we are supposed to tell a story that doesn't exist. A story that we made up with the excuse that well we got the other parts in there also. It's not that kind of a story. The story that we tell on the night of Pesach is the story that we know. The story that's in the parish of Aira. The story that's in the parish of Bo. The story that's in the parish of Bishalach. That's the story that we tell and nothing else. But the purpose of the story, the purpose of the story, besides the fact that there's a mitzvah to tell the story, the Haggadah says, the Haggadah says, that there's a purpose. Not only is there an obligation, but that obligation has a purpose, and that purpose is to say Hallel. That's the purpose. To say Hallel. <coughs> and the introduction to Hallel, which comes after Dayenu, And everybody knows that when you say Hallel on the night of Pesach, there's no bracha. You don't say a bracha. Even though there's a minag that in shul, right, the shul in Eretz Yisrael, I think generally it's very common that in, after Mariv on the night of Pesach, you say Hallel. And that halal that you say in shul, you say with a bracha. Just like the halal you say in Hanukkah, and the halal you say in Rosh Chodesh, the halal in shul, but the halal in Hagodah doesn't have a bracha. Because the halal in Hagodah, the halal in Hagodah comes as a result of the fact that we told the story. And we told the story in a way that the whole door of Adol Chayav Adam Lerot in that small Kiluhuya Tzavim Mitzrayim. And when something wonderful happens to you and you thank God, you don't say a brocha. Hashem Kirishadu B'mitzvotav. It's not because the Chachamim ordained that forever Hallel should be said, but it's rather because we feel that we have no other option. We have to look towards heaven and thank God, and the way we do that is by saying Hallel. So we don't say a bracha. Now what gives us that behold door of Ador? How do we become Chayav Adam So the Haggadah says, the Balatanya says, Rab, Rab Salavejik said, I think, that you can only be thankful if you are the one who left Mitzrayim. And you can only be the one who left Mitzrayim if you're able to say something chadash, something meaningful. If you're able to look at the process that is described and chop it up into smaller pieces and to be able to say, wow, I thought that the Makkah was just the Makkah, but you know it has a beginning. And it has a middle. And it has an end. And so Rabbi Loza said, you know, it depends how you count. You can count 40 makot in the tribe. And 250 alayav, or 200 alayav. And Rabbi Akiva said, you can count 50. 
which doesn't mean that there aren't ten. Of course there are ten. But when you look closely at those ten, each one of those makot, you see each one of them has a background, it has a beginning, it has an end, it has a meaning. Why dam? Why was that first? Why did that come? It is everything, everything about the story can be investigated. And if we come out of our investigation of the story with some kind of understanding, that understanding is new. And what is that understanding an understanding of? It's an understanding somehow of what God wanted us to understand. What God wanted us to know. And it's about that understanding, the understanding that is ours, that is our original understanding, that is our creative understanding, for which we say Hallel on the night of Pesach. So that the high of Adam L'Saper B'Nisim L'Vniflot doesn't just mean, doesn't just mean I've got to tell my children. Yes, I've got to tell my children. But I've also got to tell myself. And telling myself, I've got to change the world that I live in. I've got to see everything differently. I've got to be overwhelmed with a sense of, a sense of thanksgiving for everything that happened and everything that is still happening as a result of that original happening. And so, the story, and that's what the Tanaim say. And that's what Dayenu says. Dayenu doesn't say, if we came to Har Sinai and didn't get the Torah, we would all be happy. But the Dayenu says, you know how good it was to come to Har Sinai? You know how important it was for us to just stand there before HaKadosh Baruch You know how important it was to come to Eretz Yisrael? I know we came to Eretz Yisrael to build the Beit HaMikdash, but you know that Eretz Yisrael itself has some sort of ultimate value. And that's something that we tell ourselves when we tell the story of Pesach. And therefore, therefore, the Tosefta says, on the second side of the page, the wrong Tosefta is printed, I'm sorry. It says Chet, but it's really Hey. Uh, but the Tosefta said, as we said in the ha- Haggadah as well, you know, the Tanaim was sitting in Bnei Brak. The Tanaim was sitting in Bnei Brak. And the students came to them and they said, you know, you know what time it is? It's time for Kriyat Shema Shal Shachrit. What does that mean? That they were so involved with the story that they were telling, with the understanding that they had reached, they were so connected to God's will that they could not relate to other things that were happening. The students who came in, they were like, had a good night's sleep. They were not involved. And they said, Rabbi or Rabbi it's time to say Kriyat Shema. And they, of course, they went to say Kriyat Shema, but they were in a different world. A world of their own making. A world where chametz is meaningful and matzah is meaningful. And so you see that the question that the son asks, and then we say, remember there are four sons? You remember there are four sons? They were last year and they'll be this year. And chacham now omer. So what does the chacham say? What do you mean, I don't? You say, hey kid. This is Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim time. This is Nisim and Niflaot. What are you asking these hard questions for? And what's the answer? It says, That's the answer. You know what that is? The last Mishnah in Psachim. And what does it say? After the Korban Pesach, you can't eat anything else. But you have to keep, retain the taste of the Korban Pesach after the meal is over. You say, Gavald, what is this? We're supposed to talk about Nisim and Niflaot. Oh, well, comes a bratty kid. 
And he asks like a philosophical question. He says, listen kid, we want to eat supper tonight. And then he's doing philosophical questions that could go on forever. Ma'idot, achukim, mishpatim. That's all he wants to know. What's going on? What, is all the, what are all these regulations? What's the answer? You tell them, let's learn. Let's learn because by learning, we might understand something about the world that God has put us into. And the sipur of nisim v'niflaot is not the rendition of the story that everybody knows, but it's the creative option that we have to make something of the story. To be able to like look into it more carefully. To be able to understand more than we understood previously. That understanding is called Talmud Torah. And you remember that the Balatanya said that that's what Talmud Torah is. The words that define our relationship to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So L'Safed Nisim V'Niflaot just means this. On the night of Pesach, as on other nights, we're obligated to learn Torah. It's only that the curriculum of the evening is set. But the Talmud Torah of the evening that has to be created anew every year. And therefore, even Chachamim, Univonim, the Yod'ei HaTorah, even they have to ask the question and give the answer every year, year after year. Have a good Shabbos. Chag Hashem. Sameach. All the best.